Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Hello everybody, thank you very much for joining me on this latest ITAM Review Podcast. Once again, I am joined by a fantastic group of speakers. We have got the always excellent um, Mike and Dean from Licensed Fortress, and they are joined by the equally always excellent Art and Joel from Beeman and much more. So you, you, I'm sure you will have heard us all talking on previous podcasts, so you know what you're in for. Um, today, we are talking about the Oracle versus Rimini court cases and what that means for the ITAM industry and, and professionals within it couple of bits of housekeeping one pronunciation so we've got a mixture of english east coast us and west coast us so we we've determined we're going to try and stick to to the, the what seems to be the english pronunciation which is rimini but if you hear a rimini or anything in between we are all talking about the same thing um and the the other piece is Everything that we're talking about today is taken from the public record. It's all public knowledge. So then, you know, no one is a client of, of any of ours. So everything we're saying is out in the public domain. Uh, you know, any opinions are our own, etc. Um, and with that, I will hand over to to Mike to, to kick us off and then see how we get on from there. Thank you, Rich, and I want to thank ITM for having us here today. So one of the most profitable, consistent parts of Oracle's business is its ongoing support. This is a revenue stream that keeps going on and on in perpetuity. Remini's entire business model offers companies an alternative to vendor-supported support, and Remini Street is the largest provider globally. For over a decade, these two organizations have been battling in court. With the original litigation starting with the copyright infringement case in 2010, and public records show Oracle prevailed, winning $90 million in damages, fees, and the cost on that action. Oracle is doing everything it can to protect this lucrative revenue, revenue stream. During this on ongoing court battle with Remedy Street, Oracle has attempted to challenge everything from our rights to use third-party support alternatives to the reuse of knowledge being learned from one customer and then being used in another customer. This has Remini Street on the front lines protecting all our rights as it continues to protect its right to exist. Given the wide-ranging effect this court battle could have on every organization globally, we feel it's frankly important that we discuss it today. Yeah, wonderful intro from from mike there thank you very much and i think what we'll do now is just look at some background it's a topic that's been you know sort of 13 years in, in the making so far um so for those people who who aren't fully familiar um i think you know, your mike covered quite quite a bit of the um the background there but is there anything additional that anyone thinks we should we should cover just to set the scene for for our, our listeners today in terms of um you know kind of how how we got to where we are or indeed you know where are we at the moment so rich i'm happy to give kind of what i would call the capsule summary of how the two matters have fought against each other for those last 13 years again a lot all of this is out there but it's surprisingly hard to find these good capsule summaries because people seem to have given up on the case at sometimes you can find articles from a few years back that try to summarize the whole thing but it's too much the avalanche of rulings information seems almost overwhelming Ramini won 
filed in 2010. It was Oracle against Ramini for their uh, the way in which they were gathering up patches uh, downloaded from the Oracle store and then used to help their customers. That went on. They had that sledgehammer verdict that came out. There was a permanent injunction that was entered. Ramini said, we're all better now. And so they filed Ramini 2 against Oracle to try to get a declaration that what they were now doing was okay. Oracle cross-sued and said, aha, no, it's not. You're still doing many, many things that you should not be doing. Uh, in the meantime, they also filed back in Ramini 1, they being Oracle, against Ramini saying you breached the permanent injunction and you should be in contempt of court. The court agreed and said you breached the permanent injunction. In my very humble opinion on that one, it was very, very minor breaches, but it shows just how tight the permanent injunction is on Ramini. It was little things like a customer of Ramini forwarded patches to a, a Ramini uh, a technician who then failed to go through the protocol of quarantining it. It was little things like that, but nonetheless, the, there were still a million more dollars at stake and a breach of the permanent injunction. Then, in uh, uh, the matter that just happened, or the, the trial happened in around February, it was a bench trial, and then the ruling came down at the end of July, is the, the sledgehammer verdict again that we're all talking about. And it was the one that said, you're violating on PeopleSoft. You are in direct violation. You're violating for database in PeopleSoft environments. And then you are, I get a mixed up here, but there was a no infringement for JD Edwards and eBusiness Suite. And then on top of that, there were further uh, uh, findings as far as statements Ramini had to make about that they had made before that were untrue. They had to never say other things. So it's a, a, a tight permanent injunction that came along with this that actually compelled speech, which is something that this country loathes. We do that as rarely as possible. You have the courts actually force somebody to say something about their product. That happened. Obviously, Ramini uh, ran to the Ninth Circuit and appealed it and, uh, and then filed an emergency motion to stay. Yeah, uh, we got to stay this permanent injunction. Uh, the court denied it, but said, well, as long as you're at the Ninth Circuit, we'll let the Ninth Circuit decide this. So the permanent injunction is on hold right now while the Ninth Circuit decides it. The Ninth Circuit just said, well, Oracle just filed something back at the district court asking for an expansion of the order, basically saying there are similar things that you treated differently, so revisit your order. Then the Ninth Circuit said we can't decide any of this until it's final at the district court level. So the permanent injunction is stayed. Ramini does not need to say the things that they were compelled to say until after the permanent injunction is over. And now uh, they were back at the district court with a timely filed motion to expand the 197 page order to include some additional products that weren't originally included. There's my summary. I bet that was crystal clear. That was, that was fantastic. And it cleared up a question that I had. I'd seen that, that Rimini and I, side note, we've already failed at the standard pronunciation, but I think we've we've said both of them. So I think everyone knows what, what we're talking about. And yeah, I'd seen that Rimini had to say certain things, da, 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 but I also couldn't find them. And that explains why, if the injunction is is kind of being on, on hold. Um, for our international listeners... What's the significance of the ninth, this the the ninth circuit court? Is that particularly technology related, or is that one of the higher levels of court in the U.S.? Oh, got yeah. it. Of course. Oh, go on, Art, please. No. Well, it's and this is an important point, and thank you for raising this, Rich. Uh, in the United States, on these matters, we don't have what you see in other countries, and in particular Western democracies, so-called specialized courts. Okay. The, the, the Ninth Circuit, which is the appellate uh, court for, we'll just say, the West Coast uh, and the U.S. district courts within uh, the states of the United States on the West Coast, considers all matters of general jurisdiction, including in this instance, of course, uh, copyrights. And in a way, both at the trial court level and the appellate court level, 
That's what makes intellectual property disputes in the United States such a lottery, because there are times at the trial court level, candidly, where you have a judge who really never understood the technology. Uh, never mind the law for a moment, just didn't quite get the technology. And what happens then? You get bad decisions. You get decisions that really, really aren't on track with the technology and the law as it should be evolving. The Ninth Circuit um, is, again, it's an appellate court of general jurisdiction. And where they go on this issue, and Mike identified it at the outset, and he referred to it as the reuse of know-how. And once that is in the hot hands of the Ninth Circuit, what's gonna happen? We don't know. And that's highly speculative right now. The Ninth Circuit is by reputation, a court that uh, 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 doesn't hesitate to get creative. And remember here that what we are talking about are rights, intellectual property rights. And that's how Oracle comes to the table. They have duly authorized copyrights. They have been protected by the US Patent Trademark Office. Copyrights been issued. And there's the best way to look at a copyright is like a patent or anything else. It's a government sanctioned monopoly. In other words, you're allowed to exclude your competitors and others from a particular space. So in, in, in most instances, if not all, when you have an intellectual property interest, a patent, or in this instance, a copyright, you come with a presumption of validity of the intellectual property. And then all you really need to do is make the case for infringement. And that's why, you know, uh, this reuse of know-how, and it's going to be, I'm, we're pretty confident, will be in the hands of, uh, uh, of the Ninth Circuit. Don't forget, as appalling as that sounds, the notion of reuse of, of, of know-how somehow or other constituting infringement of a copyright. Don't forget that there is a doctrine in U.S. law uh, referred to as cross-use. And that's what Oracle's arguing here. So they're not really, they're not really creating out this out of whole cloth. It's not as outrageous necessarily. It's out, it could be an outrageous outcome. But the legal arguments that they're going to be taking to the Ninth Circuit are not outrageous per se and very much grounded in established copyright law. Oh, wow. So, so first of all, fantastic explanation of, of the court system there. And, and then the, the point you make at the end there that there's it's not a completely made up um attempt this this know-how piece um that's interesting you know that there is some something behind it um so we've mentioned it a couple of times you know this this reuse of know-how um it's one of those things it it sort of says, does what it says on the tin in terms of, of what we're talking about but i think for, for people listening who who are maybe thinking oh well no it can't mean what i think it means uh, when when we talk about the the reuse of know-how, you know what exactly are we are we referring to there? Is it a specific technology? Is it specific things, or is it you know just general know-how about Oracle software? You know where it have they drawn a line around it, or or is it up for debate? Well, the certainly from the standpoint of the litigation, and Joel obviously. Um, your insights here will be important. But certainly from the standpoint of the litigation, what we're talking about in the instance of reuse of know-how, or as Oracle describes it, cross-use, it's the use of one customer's license to develop updates uh, for other of its customers. And they're saying that that, that amounts to cross-use. And a simple, uh, how should I say, uh, the exterior of that is quite appealing. OK, in other words, there is the doctrine and you typically as the defendant in this instance, uh, uh, Remini or anyone else sued on Oracle's copyrights. You're basically in most instances for copyright because the copyright has generally been conferred pursuant to a license. You're, you're left with really two defenses. Uh, one is you have an express license. In other words, what you're doing you can do pursuant to the licenses terms. In this instance, with the Oracle licenses, because 
they uh, do so much by their language to limit the scope of uh, the authorized use uh, uh, such that it has to be done on behalf of the particular licensee. That's a stretch to say that, well, you, you're, you're allowing me to do this pursuant to the terms of, of the license. The other defense that's typically raised, unfortunately, is even tougher, and that's the so-called copyright misuse. And that's a doctrine that prohibits copyright holders from leveraging their limited monopoly to allow them control of areas outside their monopoly. So what you would have to show in the instance of reuse of know-how, and by the way, that doctrine, copyright misuse, it's used sparingly and rarely successfully. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's tough. And so you'd have to come in here and say, your monopoly, Oracle, is limited to this. And by reaching into or attempting to control reuse of know-how in this uh, market, this support market, third-party support market, you are stretching your monopoly beyond what the intellectual property law provides tough case to make. So I think uh, that where we have Oracle, where Oracle finds itself with the Ninth Circuit, new game. They can take all this and it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's viewed as a fresh start with the, uh, uh, with the Ninth Circuit on these matters and they'll get it. And it'll really be, again, to Mike's original point, that's gonna be uh, when the Ninth Circuit has a, a time for everyone in this industry to be holding their breath. Right, I see. So, so when when we talk about so we, you know we're talking about this through the the lens of of Rimini Street third party support, but does the reuse of know how extend sort of outside of that? So you know if, if person A learns how to manage you know Oracle software or how to defend an Oracle audit, you know can they then? tell someone else or, or or use it use that knowledge to support uh, another customer does it does it touch on that side of things as well mike uh, see to me it's a opening up a can of worms right the wrong judge comes along and agrees with this and now all of a sudden you're an itm expert you're working at a customer you've come up with a strategy and a way to go determine something and you at you go and take a script you've created you move it over to another customer, you violated reuse of knowledge, right? It, it's it's just how do you? It just opens up a can of worms of potential problems, and and what people have to understand is Oracle's going to do everything it can to protect this revenue stream, and the reason they're here is because Rimini Street has crossed lines it shouldn't. So one of the other things that was up was do you even have a right to use a third party support? The good news is the courts came in and said, you absolutely do have a right to use third-party support, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So yeah. for example, Rimini Street, even though you're entitled to the patch, can't give it to you. You have to get it before you leave Oracle support or before you leave the other support organization. Then you have a legitimate right to use that patch. But if you forgot to download it, guess what? You can no longer go get it because it would be illegal. Uh, and so there's a lot of things going on here. And it's really, frankly, very dangerous. And you have to pay attention because all of a sudden you might find out you're doing a lot of illegal things until it gets cleaned up. Right. So, so that you make a very good point there in terms of how this relates to you know, the, the ITAM world, the IT asset management audience. Because I, I think, you know, Someone mentioned it near the start. I think it was you, Art, that you know this has been going on for a long time, and, and people have become, you know, maybe a little bit, um, you know, immune to it, and doesn't really affect me. It's kind of legal wrangling about, you know, very specific things. But but as we've seen so far, this this has potential. So whether you're an end customer of Oracle's, whether you're a third party consultant, etc potentially it 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 might impact you so this is one of those areas of we all need to to pay attention we need to to understand what we're doing how this uh this lawsuit might impact us um uh, and I, I guess you know with it going to the ninth circuit are we able to say 
and I think I know the answer to this, you know, are we able to say, oh, this will be decided in the next, you know, six weeks, six months, six years, or is it, uh, you know, depends on how many other cases they've got, depends how long, how much attention they pay, how long they want to delve into it. Is it a, an open-ended situation? I would be surprised if it was decided within a year. Um, once you start stretching towards a year and a half or two years, then that starts to seem lengthy. But we could get a decision on whether or not the permanent injunction is in place could happen in the next six weeks. It's my understanding that's fully briefed and ready to go, and that could drop pretty much any time, but there's still one thing in between now and then, and that's, of course, Oracle's efforts to expand the order from the, uh, the district court. And then the, the the impact of that is going to be massive. I mean, on the one hand, Remini has stated that they um, can go ahead and serve PeopleSoft customers. They've said, no problem, we still got it. Then they filed papers that said that if you enforce this permanent injunction, all of our PeopleSoft customers are gonna be in a world of hurt right now. So uh, obviously the truth lies in between those two, but don't, I, I don't know exactly where. It certainly isn't going to be good for existing PeopleSoft customers if a permanent injunction drops. Obviously, I have no idea whether or not Remini is frantically right now trying to replace things inside of certain PeopleSoft environments for their customers. Uh, pure speculation, I imagine they are, but I don't know. And I wanna throw out one more grenade into this, which is, the um the the Ramini Ramini customers who might have these contraband files on their computers right now, uh, is there liability for these Ramini customers for having copyright infringing materials on their environments? It's not too hard to speculate a situation where Oracle is already doing an audit of somebody, and then they expand their audit a little bit. And they say, now let's search for these named files. Remember, the 197-page the order listed the names of a lot of files that were contraband. And then they just, with their scripts, run a review to see if any of those files are there. And if they are, they say, you're a copyright infringer. I mean, you would have defenses. Oh, I didn't know Remini put them there, but good luck with those because all of a sudden in the scope of an audit, they have yet another hammer they're, they're hammering you with, which is you have these copyright infringing materials in your system and it's your environment. You should know better. Now, again, that is speculation, but at the same time, we do know that Oracle likes to fight these proxy wars. We uh, uh, accuse them of that during the whole cloud wars. Rather than attack Google or attack Amazon, they attacked their customers and said, oh, you're infringing because you moved Oracle software into the cloud. And they're like, whoa, you know, Amazon said we could, or I thought we could, or whatever. They didn't really care about that customer, in my opinion, as much as they wanted to make uh, uh, Amazon and Google appear unreliable. Could they do that here? I have not seen any signs of it, but uh, I'm holding my breath for the first audit where we get back an audit report that says we really need to look into these files you have that, once again, you are forbidden from having their copyright infringing. But, but Oracle's motivation is very clear. They want to protect this revenue stream yes. and legitimately want to protect the intellectual property that has been stepped on. Like we got here because Rimini Street, frankly, did things it shouldn't do. But in Rimini Street's defense, name one IT company that got to where they are that didn't play a little loosey-goosey. This is a heritage on Silicon Valley of crossing lines they shouldn't get to, so they're big enough they can afford to fight it. Completely agree with with the overall point um, there. And I think Joel's point made something clearer to me that that you know this isn't a, an abstract. It, it is a... If Oracle are auditing you and your uh, a Rimini Street customer, this is something that you need to be considering now. And you know, we, we say it every time we we speak for one reason or another. But the ITAM team needs to be talking to their in-house legal team or their you know third-party legal support, whoever it may be, to say, look. You know, this is our situation. We use this company. We use this other company. There's an ongoing situation, you know. Let's talk about where we might, you know, need need to be careful or what we might need to do to to protect ourselves. So, so I guess that's a kind of immediate action. You know, anyone listening to us, if you 
tick these boxes, go and have that conversation and understand the the products that are, are in use and how it might impact you. And and I, I suppose a, a slight side note with that, you know, we're talking here about Oracle and, and Rimini. There are other third-party support providers for Oracle, and then there are people who provide third-party support for other publishers, you know, IBM, Microsoft, etc. Does this potentially apply to all, all of them as well? Well, by saying potentially, absolutely it does, potentially. Bear in mind that our intellectual uh, property law structure here in the United States, the contemplates enforcement of the IP, copyright, patent, whatever it may be, by the holder of the intellectual property. In other words, it's to the discretion of the intellectual property holder. So there's a scenario, uh, obviously, where if they, they be an Oracle, get a favorable ruling on this cross-use issue, reuse of know-how, however you want to frame it, uh, the, the way they would deploy that law on their side is strategically. They'll go after certain uh, third-party uh, providers and let the others uh, walk for whatever business reasons they may have. And it's that unpredictability of their enforcement of their intellectual property, which in its own way adds to the havoc which they can leave on the market uh, when they uh, uh, go out and enforce it as they see fit because there's no requirement once you have the intellectual property that you uniformly and fairly enforce it out there in the market. You can crush right. some people and let others walk. That's your call. And that unpredictability is what makes it such a wicked weapon. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So so if I'm a third party support provider, everything's fine for me right now. Everything continues to be fine for the next five years. But then one day, that Oracle can say, actually, now things aren't fine and, and I can't go, oh, well, but it has been, you know, it was fine last year. They, they can they can do things differently and, and at different times, depending on, on how they feel. And depending on the state of the law, absolutely, yes. Right, and I see. And then, and I suppose as well, if Oracle are successful, that opens up the possibility for other software publishers to go oh well you know if if oracle can stop people doing that i don't see why we can and and a, a similar thing a, a across the, the third party support market um and yeah and it is a growing area you know we see at item review you know more people thinking about it talking about it looking at their options especially with all the price increases that we're seeing from software vendors through 2023, it becomes you know more of a an appealing thing. So, so Dean, have you seen a, an increase as well in in customer organisations looking at third party support for for Oracle and possibly other software vendors? Um, I, I would say yes, Rich. I mean, I think in general, everybody's looking for ways to um, get the job done. Um, with less expense, right? IT is always about budgets or shrinking. Um, and with a lot of the propositions put out there by these third-party support vendors, um, it's a good way to, to save money. Um, and it can be a very effective way, especially when you're talking about some legacy environments. Um, but I think your your overall point, Rich, is, is back to what Mike had said at the outset, is that this is a significant revenue stream for Oracle and other vendors. And they are doing things not just with this legal battle, but just in general overall to protect that. Um, for example, as all of these vendors kind of move away from this, I'll call legacy model of license and support towards the new model of subscriptions, that's another way to protect it because it takes this off the table. Um, in the old version, if you bought a license and then paid support, obviously, as we've been talking about, you can decide that you don't need support for that anymore. You still have that license. Um, with the new model of these subscriptions, a lot of the terms are that when you stop paying, you lose the license as well. And that makes it impossible to take to a third party uh, provider because they're bundled up in one. And we've seen 
uh, additional uh, requirements coming into play when you're talking about some cloud environments too, where the vendors might be requiring an active support contract, um, which would obviously prevent third-party support from coming into play. A lot of nuances in there, but it's all, I think, ultimately, as Mike said, comes down to revenue and protecting that revenue stream because it is billions with a B for a lot of these vendors. Yeah, now that, that's an interesting point. And talking about subscriptions and you know locking things down, tying people in, as we move to the cloud, and you know, whether it's Oracle's cloud or, or someone else's cloud, you know, moving things to, to SaaS subscriptions, platforms as a service, etc., you know, it is common more and more so for, for customers these days. So so this Something to consider in that, you know, whether when you think, are we going to move to the cloud? Do we move from CapEx to OpEx? And typically, OpEx always looks more appealing. You know, the the numbers are smaller. It's spread out. Da, da, da. But something which people perhaps aren't aware of. And certainly in a larger organization, I can well imagine there being a disconnect between the finance people who are making the decision, do we move our Oracle to an OPEX model? You know, they're probably not talking to the teams who are supporting, as you said, Dean, you know, legacy Oracle software from, you know, the the mid 20th century potential. Well, no, perhaps not that old, but, you know, certainly um, decades old. And, and, you know, a decision that, that's taken on in one part of the business may increase costs significantly in another part of the business or introduce compliance risk, et cetera. So I, I think again, as a uh, you know, an action point for people, it's it's making sure that all the parts of your business are joined up when you're talking to these vendors, Oracle and others. And and you know, if if you are using third party support, make sure everybody who needs to know is aware and, and aware of what that means in regards to this this current lawsuit but also in in general terms of, of procurement and um and changes going forwards and so i mean on, on that side you know with the cloud have you seen anything around you know oracle making it uh um, what's the word? Uh, you know, a stipulation. If you're if you're moving into the Oracle Cloud, you have to have Oracle support. You know, whether you're using BYOL or subscription, or or have you seen? Is it possible to have third party support and be in a cloud environment? Um, I I think the short answer is is yes, but it depends on the particulars of there because. Uh, all clouds are not the same. And even within a certain cloud, you have, as you mentioned, different pieces, right? It could be infrastructure as a service. It could be platform as a service. It could be SaaS, software as a service in there. And those particulars are are all different in there. I think for the most part, um, which so a kind of guiding principle is if you're just using the cloud for infrastructure and the customer uh, controls the installation, controls the patching, controls the maintenance on it. Um, those are the ones where you can bring your own license and, and use third-party support. Uh, it's the ones where it's either a mix or fully controlled by the cloud provider, where uh, the patching is done by them or uh, partially done by them, where it becomes much more uh, tricky in there to control it. And, and all of the providers have different uh, standards around it, um, and even the licenses themselves can be applicable in different scenarios there. So it does become difficult, but there are certainly scenarios where third-party support works in the cloud um, just as well as it does in, in legacy environments. Right, I see. And uh, yeah, you know the the phrase that that one can't help but use when talking about any software. You know, it depends. Um, you know. I, it, it unfortunately does have to be the caveat for most things. Um, but kind of back to the, the 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 legal side of things and the confusion, the uncertainty. You know, to Art's point earlier that you know you don't uniformly, etc. 
it reminds me of the the second hand software market in Europe. So it, it's something that you know we've had. I think we're, we're approaching you know more than a decade of where you've been able to to resell software, purchase second hand software, um, and you know there are there are legal cases as precedent. You know there are a variety of companies in Europe who specialize in this area. But for a lot of organizations, there's just an element of of uncertainty. You know, I'm I'm not quite sure what I can do, what I can't do. So if I'm a, a purchaser, a procurement manager, an IT director, th there's a kind of you know risk rewards. Yes, I might be able to save X amount of money, but what if I'm wrong? Or what if our particular scenario falls outside of that scope and I'm now, you know, I've saved three million, but actually buy and, and you know we get hit with the bill. So I'll probably to be safe, I'll just buy, you know, regular first party software because I know that's okay. And I, I I feel like and again, you know, this is this is my opinion, you know, but it, it feels like it's it's a similar situation with the third party support where the the confusion and the uncertainty means that many organizations will lean towards the, the safer and more expensive option of sticking with with first party support do you feel that that is is perhaps part of you know what what they're trying to go for here well i i, I, I won't make... go ahead dean please I was going to say, um, I, I think safety is is definitely there. This does get very tricky, right? And very few people have had to polish up their resume when they go with the, the safe route um, or employ some of the large, well-known vendors um, to give them advice on this. Um, but but I would say from our perspective, Rich, I think we, we know a couple of people and a couple of firms that would be happy to assist them with all of these nuances um, and do it on a pretty regular basis. If you want to look at a true Orwellian future here, uh, all you have to do is look at the frustration and problems encountered by Rimini in attempting to comply with a permanent injunction. And this gets back to the, by way of example, the reuse of know-how, uh, the cross-use, however you define it. If the Ninth Circuit ultimately this ha uh, renders an opinion where they, in essence, say there's a right way and a wrong way. Who knows what that'll be? But let's just say there's a right way or and a wrong way. I can't believe how difficult that will be in the IT world to figure out what to do. I mean, you, after literally years of litigating and knowing the issues inside out, um, Remini was having a hard time towing the line on not one, but two permanent injunctions. Uh, if all of a sudden the permanent injunctions become the law of the land, so to speak, by virtue of a Ninth Circuit decision, and you have IT departments uh, around the country trying to figure out, well, what do we do with this third-party support? It seems to me we can do this based on the decision, but not that. Well, um, talk to your lawyers and hope that you don't get sued. I mean, that's a that's a tough, tough future, even if they acknowledge, that is the Ninth Circuit, acknowledges that, well, there is such a thing as know-how and you cannot across the board copyright uh, know-how in this context. However, there is still this doctrine of cross-use and therefore you need to do A, B, and C. That's that, that's going to be a tough, tough market to navigate. Yeah, I think for, for customers and for providers and for consultancies mm -hmm. and, and things and, and then... You know, li listening to that, then you know, my instinct was, well, I would just get support from the publisher, and you know, not, not potentially get trip up. Um, so it, it certainly seems like um, a, a a more important situation than it first looks. I, I think for for many people listening. You know, cause there are these various, you know, Oracle versus Google and, you know, th there's always some kind of case going on. And I think people think, well, you know, it's a much higher level than than my organization. I'll I'll keep doing what I'm doing and, you know, we'll I'll read about it. 
in, in the New York Times or, or something when it's it's finally done. But from from this conversation, and you know, and I, I thought I had a, a pretty good hand on it, but it, it turns out um not not as good as I thought. So it's been very interesting for me to see oh actually it applies here and it applies there and you know this might cause a problem. And I and I think for the people listening to us, everyone will will have at least one part of their business where they can see the, the potential implications of this. Um, and I think it seems to be in two sections. If you're a Rimini customer, then you know there's one set of perhaps more immediate um, problems or or changes that that might come about. But then for for all of us in 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 a wider uh, industry, you know, if you're using Oracle, then you know, there are implications. And potentially further down the line, if you're using any software there, there there may be implications for this so it's yeah it seems like it has the potential to be a, a a real line in the sand you know and will be oh do you remember the days before when you know when you could do this um so so yeah i i, I my advice for, for for our listeners would be understand your your um you know how this might affect you you know are you are you using rimini are you using oracle uh do you have plans to um and and go and talk to your stakeholders you know um procurement and things of course but but higher up as well you know the cfo cio etc understand you know is there a conversation or a plan for for next year or three years that that might get you caught in this it's uh, it's one of those that i've been saying in various ways you know that the item risk is business risk and and this is one of those things where if someone looks at it as oh it's third party support it's it's an item thing i don't need to concern you know important stakeholders with it but but i, I think absolutely this is one of those things that has the potential to uh, to impact right throughout a business. Um, but, but take that a step further. Every time you make a purchase from any software vendor, review in detail the terms because it's not uncommon for them to start changing terms over time and sliding it into the purchase. So really, it really does require professionals inside the organization, ITM professionals, they're worth their weight in gold, and outside professionals who are constantly dealing with the vendors and their evolving playbooks. What if Oracle decided up the road, you know what, we want to close this loophole of getting patches so when somebody leaves, they can use those patches that they downloaded. What if they decide to change the terms to say, you can download a patch, but you can only use it in the next 90 days. And they slide that in and try to change your terms moving forward so that you don't have this as an option. Right. And so my only point is buyer beware, use professional help, review these contracts, review these purchase orders to make sure they're not changing the rules on you that works against you. Completely agree. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've seen it with other vendors where, you know, click through agreements. Yep, that's fine. But it actually claims to fundamentally change an agreement that you made you know, t 10 years ago that, that you think is still in effect. And that is a, you know, that's a whole other podcast on its own, the, uh, that side of things. Um, but, but given that we're, we're approaching time, um, we've covered a, a lot here. You know, some of it relatively um, complicated for, for people that aren't of a, you know, a legal disposition, um, and and as we said at the start, you know it's all all in the, in the public domain. It's all public knowledge. So if you if you want to learn more, I think uh, as Joel said, it, it's not find. But if you you know if you want to learn more, it is out there. You you can do some research yourself. You can of course get in touch with 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 any or all of us um, to to help as well. But I suppose you know final thoughts from. Um, from each of you if you will indulge me uh for those people listening 
what's the the kind of main thing that they should take away from from this today in terms of a you know, one thing that you should understand or one thing that you should go and do when you get back to the office um and i will i will start with uh i'll start with you mike yeah i think that a business has to i think outsourcing to a third party alternative is a very viable option depending on your unique circumstances and with it comes a lot of pros and cons. So for example, 50% cost savings, maybe as high as a 70, 80% cost savings when you factor in, you're not doing major upgrades because you're no longer entitled to them is on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is you don't get any security patches moving forward. And so you have to think about how you're going to handle everything comes with pros and cons. And so depending on your situation, this might make perfect sense, or it might make better sense to stay where you are. Right. Great point. Yeah. I think that sometimes people forget that staying where you are is sometimes the, the better option. Uh, so I, I like that. Um, Joel? Well, rather than take the opportunity to be simple and concise, I, I'm just going to real quick ratchet it up. Um, this is a huge question in America right now. Yeah, I said it, a huge question in America. But it, it's it's the freedom to do what you want with your stuff. This is happening across all industries. Monsanto says you can't reuse your seeds. Farmers, John Deere says you can't look inside of the underhood of your tractors right now. Apple says you can't jailbreak your phones. I think the EU is doing a better job of pushing back on some of that. We're getting almost no pushback here in the United States. And this is the exact same example of that. You are tethered to exactly what we say about what your software is and who can serve it. It is not yours. It is still ours. And you are in bondage as long as you are one of our customers. It is a terrible trend. I do not like it. And what's interesting is it crosses both ends of the political spectrum. Techno-liberals as well as the working man both want the right to do stuff with their stuff, yet somehow our government or our policies or our courts are not helping us with this one. And so uh, I, I think it's important to look at this on that broader spectrum and, um, and, and try to be loud about it. Seize these rights. It is my opinion that it is your software to do with what you want about with it. And um, we're, we're here to help. Other people are here to help. And I say, uh, stand up, do it use your software, know the limitations and be careful. But uh, I do not like anybody in any industry getting bullied, which I think is happening in most industries right now. That is that is a fantastic final point, Joel. And um, yeah, I think, you know, that, that will resonate with, with lots of people for sure. Um, and I think, you know, you make a good point that you know, be aware of what you can and can't do, but you know, make sure you you exercise your your rights as much as you can. Um, Dean, your your final thoughts? Yeah, I think just to to um, piggyback off of what Joel said there is, uh, I hope what we conveyed here is that uh, while the topic at hand was really limited with Oracle and Rimini Street, um, this has much broader implications. Um, and thankfully, right now, um, it, it has not really spilled over um, into something that could be really impactful for for other uh, for all customers with a bunch of different vendors. Uh, but there's no nothing that says that won't happen uh, in there. And again, it's about kind of taking a broader picture at it, looking at how this applies to you, not just particularly if you're an Oracle customer or if you're a Rimini Street customer or or considering either of those looking at it from a bigger picture in there kind of across the board perfect completely agree with that um and then the final final thought the the honor is yours art oh well thank you and and thanks again for hosting uh very very much appreciated let me just say i'm going to conclude with uh with a little flag waving here okay um uh, uh, american law is uh you can view it as notorious or a good thing, uh, but very supportive of intellectual property rights. Uh, when when uh, Joel and I talk to juries and we're representing holders of intellectual property rights, we talk about inventors in the same breath here in America that we talk about cowboys. Okay, It's part of our identity. Oracle comes to this table with the, the cachet of being the holder of the intellectual property. They own it. 
and they can do with it what they want pursuant to a contract. And not only can the contract change, as Mike pointed out, but the law itself can change. And that's what we're looking at with the Ninth Circuit when they get uh, in front of them this reuse of know-how issue. The rules of the game will change. It's not going to be 100 yards on the football field anymore. It's going to be 50 yards. And that makes a big, big, big difference. And, and, and I think what that means for anyone using software is don't, don't fall prey to caveat emptor. Just get out there and know what you're dealing with. Know the contract and by extension, know the law. And both can change right out from under you and the rules can change. And the only way you can protect your business is by staying on top of both your contract and the law. And that, I think, is a, a fantastic point to make that, you know, it's similar to, to learning the, the licensing rules of a product. You know, you, you can learn everything about Microsoft, but then next week, the, you know, they've changed half a dozen things and, and you, you're worse than when you started. And it's even more the case here that, um, you know, understanding everything now is, is brilliant, but you need to make sure that you keep an eye on, you know, what does the Ninth Circuit say? What what appeals are made? What things are and aren't held, etc. Uh, and it's a constant process. And you know, for most of our listeners who are managing large IT asset management estates and they're they're doing this, that, and the other, it's not something that they can they can reasonably keep up to date with themselves. So making sure that you you use you know, in-house legal, third parties, etc., to to inform yourself that you do a review every, I don't know, three months, six months, whatever work you're, you know, you're constantly checking. I think that is a a fantastic point to to end on. So as always, thank you to 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 the four of you, fantastic speakers as always. Uh, thank you to everyone who's who's tuned in. Um, I'm sure you found it as useful as I did. If you have any questions, uh, I can't for a moment imagine that any of my fellow speakers would be annoyed if you got in touch with them. I think they would welcome it, I'm sure. So feel free to do that. Um, yeah, have a great rest of your day, everyone. And I will see you on the next one. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks, Richard.